So today, uh, the title of my message is entitled, Christ and the True Tabernacle, because as you see there, in, beginning in verse 2, we are, we are told of a sanctuary, of a true tabernacle, uh, that which the earthly was a mere representation of. And so what the text is going to tell us today is, the, what are the gifts and what are the offerings that were offered up in the true tabernacle? After all, that is the purpose of erecting the tabernacle is so that man can meet with God and so that the priests, particularly the high priest, could come in and make an offering on behalf of the people so that what we're looking at here, really as we shift gears away from the installation of Jesus as the high priest, so that now what we're looking at is the offering, the gifts, the sacrifice of Jesus as our high priest. And so chapter 8 verse 1 begins what chapter 10 verse 18 finishes, and that is a focus, an emphasis on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is what he is talking about now. And of course, he's going to give us a strong contrast between the earthly priests, the Old Testament priests, the older priests of the old order, and then the new priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ, and the new covenant order which he inaugurated through his flesh. And so what he gives us here are three redemptive images of Jesus Christ. The first one is Christ on his throne. The second one, as we've noted, is Christ in his tabernacle, and the last one is Christ and his priesthood with a particular emphasis on his offering. Now, the author is going to take us, if you didn't notice in this text, he's going to take us from the heights of Jesus' enthronement to the depths of Jesus' divine condescension. That is to say that we see Jesus enthroned, and at the same time, we see the humility, the meekness, the humble a posture that Jesus takes as a minister on behalf of His people to serve in the tabernacle of God on our behalf. It's remarkable. It's really remarkable. And uh, this tension reminded me of what Jonathan Edwards in his book, Altogether Lovely, or the collection of sermons that's called Altogether Lovely uh, on the Excellencies of Jesus Christ. Uh, here, Jonathan Edwards in that book, if you don't have that book, it's by Soli Dia Gloria. I encourage you to get that book specifically for the sermon entitled, The Excellencies of Jesus Christ, or The Excellencies of Christ. Because there, Edwards makes a point of pointing out that in Scripture, what we find is a mixture of divine excellencies that are diverse, and they're really opposites that really stress to us the wonder and the beauty and the marvel of the person Jesus Christ, just as Hebrews is, is depicting Jesus enthroned, but at the same time, a priest who humbled himself and came down low to serve us. Jonathan Edwards says that in Christ we find infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. That is to say that Jesus transcendently came down to us. It means He came from the realm of endless days. It means that He left the world of glory to come into our world of sin and to lay down His life for the sheep. That is the work of our high priest. 
That is what He did on your behalf and of mine. But let's begin with this first image, and that is Christ on His throne. Christ on His throne. It says there in verse 1, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You see how the author is trying to literally lavish adjective after adjective, description after description, image after image to portray to us that Jesus has now ascended into a position of absolute power, absolute sovereignty, absolute authority. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 19, all authority has been given to me. And what is that rooted and grounded in other than Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man that comes and is given a kingdom and his kingdom has no end and he will have sovereignty and authority over all of the peoples of of the earth, of the world. All the nations will worship this Son of Man. See, from all the way back to the Old Testament... The kingdom was about the king. No, not David, but David's son, the greater king, the messianic king. And in that way, the Bible prepares us for this enthronement language. This is the language of Christ's heavenly session. That is to say that he enters into a new state. He enters into a new time. It is no longer the time for a meek Jesus. The meek Jesus came, and He died, and He suffered, but then He rose again, so that now we no longer have Jesus coming with reference to sin. Matter of fact, that's exactly what it says at the end of chapter 9. Look what it says there. Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time. For what? For salvation without reference to sin. To those who eagerly await Him. What do you mean without reference to sin? Meaning He will not come anymore to make atonement for sin. The work for atoning for sin is done. And the vision that we are looking at here in Hebrews chapter 1 is the vision of a victorious, enthroned priest. A priest who has taken his place at the right hand of the majesty on high, at the right hand of God, which the right hand literally speaks of that place of unmitigated honor and glory and power. This has already been talked about, chapter 2, verse 9 of Hebrews. We see him, that's Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, now that's a critical, critical causal, what's known as a causal phrase. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was the grace of God that set Jesus forth as a sacrifice as an atonement, as a lamb who was slain. That is what it means by he tasted death. As Isaiah 53 says, uh, beginning in verse 10 and going all the way to verse 12, he drank the cup down to the very last drop. He poured his soul out to death. 
And that's why uh, Isaiah himself, he saw not just a crucified Jesus, not just a crucified Messiah. He foresaw not just a, a Messiah that would come and lay down his life for his people, as Matthew one twenty one says, but also a rewarded Messiah, a Messiah that inherits, inherits a great treasure. Uh, it's the language of the bountiful spoils of war. What does it mean? It means the victory of Jesus. The victory has been won by Christ. And so, chapter 2, verse 9, he suffered death, as it were. He died on the battlefield of sin. And because he did his part, the Father rewarded him by raising him up and giving him everlasting life as the enthroned king priest of the universe. Of course, Jesus had life in himself. But the man... Christ Jesus, so that the gates of heaven itself had to be lifted up to allow this man who for the first time, because of his own righteousness, had the authority to waltz into heaven. Think of it. Can you waltz into heaven? I don't care what spacecraft you take. <laughs> I'm always interested in inventions like what you see in media now, they, they're talking about these supersonic planes that are coming and they're going to be able to whisk us from New York to London in one hour or two hours or three hours, right? It doesn't matter what propels you into the skies. It doesn't matter what shields you. It is as vain as trying to land on the sun, brothers and sisters, to try to go into heaven walking in with your head, with your head held high on your own. But Jesus did. Jesus walked into heaven as a man, flesh and blood, <laughs> and flesh and blood received, was received into the kingdom of God for the first time in all eternity, which is just boggles the mind, right? Eternity, time, how, how, what, once, one time, first time? Yeah. <laughs> you figure it out. <laughs> For the first time in all eternity, a glorified man was allowed into the presence of God and was not only allowed into the presence of God, but was, sit, was allowed to, see, to sit on the seat of absolute power. Look at the phrase there. He took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. The exact same language is depicted for us in Philippians chapter 2. So if you turn there... Beginning in verse 6, we see this divine condescension, absolute glory, this infinite highness, infinite lowness that Jonathan Edwards talks about. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning this is not dealing with the ontological being of Jesus in any way whatsoever is that, that he somehow changed in his ontology. No, 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 no. He was always God. He has always been God. He will always be God. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about condescension. It says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. It's not so much what Jesus had to lay aside as much as what Jesus had to take on. He took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. In uh, Romans, I think it's Romans chapter 8 that says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Fathom that. You want to talk about humility? You want to talk about condescension? You want to talk about somebody coming down to your level? 
the holy, sinless Son of God coming down in the likeness, in the similitude of sinful flesh. But he was not sinful. But he was found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death. That's what chapter 2, verse 9 of Hebrews is talking about. Even the death of the cross. For this reason, that's another causal phrase. For this reason also, same idea, different author, different book, I I think. I don't know what your views on Hebrews authorship, but I think it's a different author. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so, at this name, every knee will bow. Again, another picture of the enthroned Christ taking his position of absolute unmitigated power, authority, sovereignty. To have sovereignty over all flesh, to have sovereignty over all things means that he is now supreme in every realm, in every area, and every, over every molecule of the cosmos, both on heaven and on earth. There's not one rebel molecule, one subatomic particle that is rebellious to the sovereignty of God. He has perfect control, perfect, absolute sovereignty over it. As Spurgeon said, as sovereign... He is as sovereign over the sun as he is the dust particle that dances in the sunbeam. <laughs> Amazing sovereignty is what we're talking about. Amazing authority. But you see, this authority goes back to chapter 1, verse 3, and what uh, the, the author of Hebrews said. He said that there, and in Hebrews 1, 3, he says there that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, this is as identical to the Father as you can get without slipping into modalism. This is pure, sheer, fine-tuned, Trinitarian, apostolic theology. He is the exact representation of his nature. And here's power, here is sovereignty. He upholds all things by the word of his power, including your life and mine, including your trial and mine, including your suffering and mine, including your birth and your death and mine. He upholds all things. I don't know how, I don't know how you're going to make it in this world, in this life, without believing that. I don't know how you're going to believe that when they start persecuting you for something as stupid as as our society trying to redefine marriage. What is going to sustain you in that day when you lose your job because part of your job now means that you got to go and you got to celebrate with all the, the non-discrimination laws and you got to go and you got to celebrate gay marriage. you got to go into the break room and celebrate some, some gay ordinance that they're trying to, to put in place at work and you say no. Not going to do it. I don't celebrate evil. Thank you. Well, then they say you're out of here. Okay. I know who upholds all things. I don't know what else holds you together in this crazy world that we live in. But he, he's not just sovereign, and he's not just depicted as sovereign here in verse 3, but just like in chapter 8, he is also a priest. He is also an offering. He made purification of sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Perfect parallel passage perfect parallel. You want to know what the book of Hebrews is all about? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, is the outline. 
That's kind of like the cliff notes. What is Hebrews about? Read verses 1 to 3. Uh, read the whole book, but you know what I mean. Read verses 1 through 3, and you will ingest what it is that the author is trying to get across. That we have a priest king who has not only made a purification of sins, but he has also ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, which means he has absolute sovereignty, absolute authority, absolute dominion now. He's entered into his heavenly session that Psalm 110 talks about. Matter of fact, if you go on in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, that's exactly what he's quoting. Psalm 110, where he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is an already not yet tension. Jesus has already been enthroned. Jesus has already uh, come into his victory. Jesus has already been seated at the right hand. Jesus has already defeated his enemies. But as the book of Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we do not see those things subject to him now. We don't see it. You turn on the television, you go on the internet, you go into society, and it seems like what we see is that his enemies are laughing all the way to the bank, mocking Christ in their anti-Christian postures and ideas and laws and philosophies and ethics. And it seems like they're just, they're just going around, as the psalmist says, strutting around the earth. But do not be deceived. The victory indeed has been won. Jesus used this verse, Psalm 110. He used it in a in different places, but he uses it, for example, in Luke chapter 20, verses 42 and 43, to talk about the greater David, David's son and David's Lord, who will do what? He will rule over his enemies, and he quotes Psalm 110. Consequently, the apostles, they piggyback on this, and they show that, look, this new covenant era in which we've come into, it is also a result of Psalm 110. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This was a favorite, you know, I try to avoid pet doctrines, right? Getting up here and just preaching your pet doctrine all the time. You know, have you ever been to a church like that before? You'd be like, yeah, I'm in one right now. I hope not. <laughs> I hope there's no pet doctrine. I hope I just go verse by verse, exegeting the Bible verse by verse, the whole counsel of God. But anyway, a pet doctrine, if there ever was one in the book of Acts, is the resurrection. Did you know that? The resurrection is chief of all doctrines in the book of Acts. More than sovereignty, more than predestination, more than election, more than justification by faith. It is the doctrine of the resurrection. Remarkable. And look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again. <laughs> That's so critical for the apostles to vindicate everything that they're doing. It vindicates it all. And says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, there's an allusion to Psalm 110. And having received from the Father the promise of the, of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the church, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. Wow. Psalm 110 is not talking about David. Making it real clear, folks, that when you read Psalm 10 today in the 21st century, you are to insert the name Jesus in there. 
Because it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, David that is, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord, and I take that to mean enthroned, exalted Lord and Messiah, Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Some of these Jews actually got that. And you know what it says? They were cut to the heart. Their heart was cut. Their conscience was pricked. What did we do? You crucified the Lord of glory. And just as the scriptures themselves predicted that they would, it is an inestimable blessing for you and I to know that Jesus is in a position of power at God's right hand. It is a great comfort to you. Is it not? Think of Stephen. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 died for his faith. Many of you sitting here today, you think that's the furthest thing from your mind. You don't expect to be stoned to death for your faith. But let me tell you, millions of Christians around the world are. This is very relevant. You know, pastors today are told to be relevant, right? Well, this is relevant to people in the persecuted world. Stephen is very relevant to them. And this vision that Stephen saw right before he took his last breath, that is, the vision of Jesus at God's right hand, was of great comfort to him. Because he realized that he was not dying and being thrown into a bottomless abyss of nothingness or uncertainty. He knew that for the believer, upon entering death, upon putting your feet in the river, you will be met with a hand. Someone will be there to catch you. Someone will be there to meet you. You will see a hand. You will see a face. You will hear a voice. You will be told, well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. I was talking about this in Sunday school today. I said, isn't it amazing, almost mind-boggling, almost too much to believe, really, that you and I, every single day of our Christian life, we stand on the precipice of everlasting life. <laughs> every day, every breath that you take, you are on the, you are, uh, you're on a razor's edge so to speak, because that's how fragile life is. You are on a razor's edge. Any day you will realize your own personal eschatology. Forget about the rapture, man. You could be ushered in at any moment because life is not promised to us. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And yet, do we live our lives as if we are one step away, one breath away, one moment away, one instance away from the greatest thing where we will see, we will see the daybreak, the dawning of a new day, of an eternal day. We will come into the very presence of God, into the very joy of the Lord where there will be, where there will be pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Just unthinkable, impossible, unbelievable. So let's go from the throne to the sanctuary. 
as we look at Christ in his tabernacle, Christ on his throne, a place of unspeakable power and authority and sovereignty, and now Christ in his tabernacle, the place of ministry. That's what it is. The tabernacle here is, uh, it is described as the true tabernacle. That is the sanctuary. That is heaven. But what's also remarkable is that here Jesus is called our minister. Did you see that? You ever call Jesus a minister? We hardly ever call him that, right? But Hebrews does. That he is the high priest who has gone into the heavens, a minister. <laughs> there he is. He is officiating in the sanctuary of God on our behalf. Just remarkable, remarkable language. Liturgeos, that's where we get the word liturgy. It speaks of ministry. It speaks of worship. It speaks of formal, high worship. And that's what Jesus is doing. You want to talk about high worship? Can you get any higher than the ministry and the worship of Jesus in the sanctuary in heaven? You cannot. It's this perfect, transcendent, high, majestic ministry. It's beautiful. And once again, the book of Hebrews proves that the whole book of Hebrews is is running down the current of a dualism between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. So it was from the very beginning. Uh, if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25, and in fact, um, there is a verse where God expressly tells uh, the people that they were to build for him a tabernacle which he describes as a sanctuary. He says in Exodus 25, beginning in verse 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as a pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture so you shall construct it. Now, we are told explicitly in verse uh, 5, look down at verse 5 here, we are told explicitly in this passage in Hebrews chapter 8 that that is precisely what took place, this heaven-earth dualism. In the construction of the tabernacle, this is what God was doing. And I've been racking my brain trying to figure that out. So, because I'm thinking in my brain, okay, what am I supposed to expect? When I get to heaven, am I going to see the pattern? There's the type. There's the real one, the glowing tabernacle. There's going to be all the furniture that corresponds to the one on earth is going to be there in heaven. And what will it be like? And what will it symbolize? Or is it more symbolic? Meaning the measurements and, the, and the, 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 all of the configurations and all of the, the stylistic aesthetics of the tabernacle. Because, you know, the tabernacle had all sorts of aesthetics things in it. It had pictures of of cherubim and angels and, and, and theologians, what they've concluded is that it was to be sort of a, a microcosm of the universe. There was representative stars in the tabernacle. There was representative heavens. There was luminaries. There were those things that, cons that, 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 um, that corresponded with the cosmos here. But it was ultimately just a picture, just a microcosm of the ultimate cosmos in heaven. It's just remarkable. It's mind-boggling what God is doing. I don't know what it's all going to correspond to. I just know that that's what it says. There was a pattern that was given to Moses on the mountain. What happened on that mountain after all? Boy, we have Sunday schooled Moses to death, have we not? 
He's just a little children's bedtime story now, right? Of a bearded old man that goes up the hill and comes down glowing and shining. He's got a big staff. There's a lot more that happened up there. God revealed to Moses heavenly dimensions and heavenly measurements of which we right now simply don't know what they correspond to. But it was so amazing, it was so fantastic, it was so otherworldly that God had to condescend to our pathetic little earthly finiteness and give us a little tent so that we could grasp what it is that we're about to enter into when all measurement will be gone. It will be amazing. That I know, it will be absolutely amazing But the tabernacle was essentially a sanctuary, a sanctuary. You know what else is amazing? Is that the Garden of Eden is also constructed as a sanctuary. There's an altar, there's a a sacramental tree, there is ritual, there is ceremony, there is offering. Uh, Matter of fact, the tabernacle and later the temple are filled with Edenic art. Did you know that? That if you look at Ezekiel, if you look at Isaiah, if you look at the minor prophets, there are little pictures and little glimpses of the, tab- of the temple, excuse me, that mirror Eden. So that what it is saying from the very outset of the Bible is that God means to dwell with His people. <laughs> God wants us to live with Him in His sanctuary. Endless church. That's what it is. Don't you hate leaving church? You're like, well, it just depends how long you preach. (laughs) But (laughs) I do, especially when things are going well and the spirit is flowing and fellowship is rich and people are praying for you and worship is going on and all these things. I, I just wish life was just an endless succession of church services. I really do. And that is what, and that is what, if you get bored at church, Get ready because heaven's going to be one everlasting church service. We will never leave the sanctuary of God. Everywhere you go, you will be in church, so to speak. And that is the most glorious thing of all is that the tabernacle was meant for us to dwell with Him. But we were not meant to dwell with Him here in this temporal place, but in heaven, in the new heavens, and the new earth, and for all eternity to dwell with our God so that the tabernacle of God is with man. Matter of fact, if you look at Psalm 76, I think the Old Testament saints had this sort of heaven-earth dualism already embedded in their eschatology. I know that's a lot. You could get the tape, rewind it, and listen to that again. Because what I'm saying is that by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think they already understood that the earthly was just a foretaste of the heavenly. Psalm 76, verse 2. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. Now, Zion is in the book of Hebrews, right? Hebrews chapter 12. What is Zion ultimately? It's not the earthly Jerusalem, folks, that you can jump on a plane and fly into Tel Aviv. That is not what it ultimately corresponds to. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. 
What is Zion? It is the city of the living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the myriads of angels. It is the general assembly and the church of the firstborn which is enrolled in heaven. It is God dwelling with His people in heaven. That is what it is. And so when God says in Psalm 76 verse 2, His tabernacle is in Zion, it means expect to dwell with God in heaven one day. Oh, it's so glorious. So amazing. Really terrific. Fantastic. Let us move on to the last thing. Not only in terms of the tabernacle, but also in terms of the priesthood. Because... Hebrews goes on to say not only that Jesus entered the true tabernacle, the one which the Lord pitched, not man. Man had nothing to do with this, this tabernacle, this heavenly tabernacle. Only God constructed it. It's only, a, 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 it's only something that's not of this world, but of the world to come. And there we see the priesthood of Jesus goes on, the eternal priesthood. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary. I want you to really latch on to that word. That's the whole reason verse 3 exists. It is necessary. In other words, there is a divine constraint going on here. It is necessary that it says that, that this high priest also have something to offer. You see that? In other words... In order for Jesus to enter into the heavenly tabernacle, into the heavenly sanctuary, he cannot come empty-handed. He needs gifts. He needs sacrifice. He needs an offering. Now, we know precisely what that offering is. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Just look right over. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, here we go. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. This is a different realm we're talking about. You can't go looking for it in the far recesses of the universe. Did you know that this week they announced they just found a new galaxy? How many of y'all saw that in the news? Well, we're surfing the same. Well, Robert doesn't surprise me. You see everything that comes out on the news. They said they found a new galaxy, and it's bigger, than the, it's bigger than the Milky Way. That means millions of stars in a new galaxy somewhere. I mean, you want to talk about how big God is. I mean, and then we're told that heaven is bigger. We're told the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. This is how ever-present, however infinite God is. People are afraid of this God, the infinity of God, the boundless presence of the holiness of God, so that He Himself is the sanctuary, we could almost say. And I think that's what Revelation is really depicting, that God's own presence is the only thing that we can ultimately conceive as a sanctuary of God because if you're thinking of heaven as a place with walls that God sits inside somewhere, I'm sorry God is not inside anybody's walls. He is the ever infinite, eternal, expand. You know, I, I, I'm at a loss for words. You know I ditched my notes now. 
this. I literally have no words to describe the infinity, the infinitude of God. Do yourself a favor. You know, I'm always prescribing books. Buy the book by Stephen Sharnock entitled The Existence and Attributes of God. Read that book. I have a friend who's read the book twice. It's over a thousand pages. And at the, every time he finished reading the book, he says he knelt down on the floor and cried like a baby. John MacArthur says it's the most important book he's ever read next to the Bible. You read Sharnock's work on the power of God. Boy, I tell you what, you want to be, you want to be filled with wonder just read Sharnock. Anyway, I don't want to go too far into that because I'll never stop talking about Sharnock. Look at verse 12. He went to a place not of this creation, not through the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Watch this. He entered the holy place once for all. See, on the basis of his blood, he was allowed to enter into the holy place in heaven, watch this, having obtained eternal redemption. If you look at Exodus chapter 29, beginning there, you see that God, after He told the Israelites how to make the tabernacle, how to make the furniture, how to clothe the high priest, then He told them, this is what you offer. You're going to offer this kind of offering, that kind of offering, this kind of sin offering, peace offering, wave offering, meal offering, all these offerings, right? But this text in Hebrews is telling us this priest too, Jesus, must have something to offer. Wow! In order to fulfill the imagery, in order to fulfill the typology, Jesus has to have a gift. As he goes into heaven, what is his offering? It's his blood. It's his sacrifice. And on the basis of that, friends, I'm not saying that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he walked in with a bowl of blood in his hand. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's saying the reality of it. The reality of the sacrifice. The shedding of the blood. The slaughter of the lamb. God sees that, recognizes that, and says, there's no way I can say no to this high priest. He has to come in. And when he comes into the Holy what does it symbolize? It symbolizes he is there to represent his people. And what is uppermost in the heart of Jesus can be found in the clothing of the high priest of the Old Testament when the high priests were told to wear 12 stones on the ephod. Why? Twelve big old stones? Isn't that kind of gaudy? <laughs> Not when those stones represent that Jesus had you on his heart when he waltzed into heaven. Your name and mine. His people. Your DNA was all over Jesus when he walked into the presence of God. It was you that he was there to represent how does that not change your life? It is amazing. That's why earlier, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews had to labor over and over to stress, Jesus is one with us. Jesus is one with us. Jesus is one with us. He's one with us so that when He goes into heaven, He takes us with Him as our four 
runner. Are you afraid to die? Why? <laughs> Jesus is waiting for you. I'm surprised that there are not more suicide cults, if you know what I mean. Wait a minute, let me, let me get this straight. So death, infinite joy and pleasure. What are we waiting for? What, do you need another trial? This is truly good news. Now, don't go misquoting me there on that suicide thing. But seriously, how does this not change our lives? Let me just finish up by saying this. In the, in, with the words of, of, of Hebrews 10.10, by this, what we just read in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, by this, Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Our sin demanded it, the sacrifice. Our sin demanded it. The covenant of grace promised it. The old covenant foreshadowed it. The new covenant provided it. And the gospel declares it. The only question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Now, let's go back to chapter 8, verse 1. Not starting all over again. I purposefully went over this quickly so that I can have something of a climax here in the end, just admittedly. Because we looked very quickly over that phrase. The high priest who has taken his what? His seat, right? That is new language for the tabernacle, if you didn't know. That is new language for the priesthood. Priests don't sit in the tabernacle. In the holy place, there is no chair for anybody to sit. Why? Because the job is never done. And so when it says, he took his seat, <laughs> it means Jesus is saying emphatically what he said on the cross in John 19. It is what? Finished. Finished. But because it is finished, that does not mean it is inconsequential anymore. Oh, it is majorly, has major consequences for the Christian life. And this is the one I want to zero in on. And it is this. What did he finish? Redemption. What does redemption mean? It means that he purchased us. He ransomed us. Okay, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if we have been purchased with a price, that means what? Your life is no longer your own. And I speak as a man that has way too much of his own still left to people that have way too much of their own still left. In other words, are we living sold out, blood-bought, slave language for our own lives? Are we servants? Are we truly living like redeemed men and women of Jesus Christ that have no other interest that can say with the Apostle Paul, my life, I don't hold it dear to myself. It's not dear to me anymore. I have thrown it all away for Jesus Christ. Do whatever you want to me. I will live the Christian life. And I will live in such a way that my neighbors, my friends, my co-workers, that they see that I am a man, a woman with no rights. That I am a slave of righteousness, a slave of my God. That I have no rights of my own. That I'm a dead man. Think about what the Christian life is. 
How much of the Christian life do we spend thinking about a dead person? (laughs) Namely, the crucified Jesus, now risen to life. But think about that. How much of the Christian life do do we live marveling at the death of a person? But I want you to marvel one more time at this. You are dead too. Or at least you should be. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 in closing. Galatians chapter 6 presents for us a series of deaths. And it's all because of the sacrifice of our high priest on the cross. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross. There's the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the high priest through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Three deaths. Christ's death on the cross, the world's death on the cross, and our death on the cross. The cross results in a complexity, a, a, a virtual uh, uh, a labyrinth, if you would, of death. Death everywhere. It killed everything around us. When Jesus died on the cross, everything changed. So much so that the, it says in Matthew, the dead came out of the grave. <laughs> in an epiphanic episode of the Bible, it doesn't get scarier than this, right? Just out of nowhere, people come crawling out of their graves. You think that'll put the fear of God in you? It was not just meant to be a, a horror movie or something like that. It was also meant to signify Jesus' death causes resurrection. Jesus' death, two things, right? The veil was torn top to bottom. And then dead people came out of the grave and walked around for a couple days. And people stood in absolute awe of this. This is one of those things that maybe a couple people saw it and it was reported. And probably at the end of the day, people thought, oh, you're crazy. You believe that that happened. But it happened as a sign that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection of yours and mine. I think the most beautiful thing about this whole tabernacle language of Hebrews is that it is not only where Jesus dwells, it is where you and I are going to dwell to. He is our forerunner who has gone ahead of us, who waits for us there, having prepared and opened up the way for us. Let's thank him for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he did what we could never do. He went into heaven as a forerunner, but he went into heaven, Lord, on the basis of his blood, the offering of his blood, as the the gift of his intercession. He went in there as our high priest. Why? So that we could one day follow in his trail. That's why. Hebrew says he is our trailblazer. He's prepared the path for us. And oh God, forgive us for the pathetic, the pathetic devotion of our hearts that often makes it impossible for us to believe it. And we live as if it's not a reality that is coming. And so Lord, we confess. We confess. Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. 
We confess here and now before you that our hearts are deceitfully wicked and that we struggle to believe these things. And the proof of that is that there's still way too much self-interest involved in our lives. So help us, Lord. Give us the proper balance, Lord, of living life for the glory of God, occupying, being faithful men and women at work, at the home, at the job place, with neighbors, and at the same time, learning that we are just aliens passing through, seeking our ultimate heavenly country. Oh, give us that heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.